Disclaimer. Today's episode concerns a topic that can be uncomfortable or even triggering for some listeners. The Passionate Stewardship Podcast and brand in no way want to endanger anyone. Instead, we want to bring education and awareness to a crisis impacting communities worldwide. If you or someone you know is being affected by human trafficking, help and support are available. Please call 1-888-373-7888. The call is free and confidential and someone is available to support 24-7. You can also text 233733 or for TTY service 711. Again, that number is one 373 or to text 233733. TTY service is 711. Please enjoy the episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Passionate Stewardship Podcast, a podcast for helping professionals who strongly believe in supporting their community and the humans who live there. I am your host, Dr. Sherry. On today's episode, we're going to continue our conversation around human trafficking. However, this week I have brought on a special guest. So instead of you continuing to hear my voice, which kind of sounds a little nasally because I've been sick, so sorry. I really want to utilize this time that I have with you all today wisely. So I'd like to welcome to the Passionate Stewardship Podcast, Melinda Sampson of NC Stop Human Trafficking. So Melinda, tell me a little bit about yourself and how you show up for the world and your organization. Thank you, Dr. Chapman. I'm Melinda Sampson, the Community Outreach Coordinator for NC Stop Human Trafficking. I have actually been in the anti-human trafficking work for almost five years now. It'll be five years in June. A little bit about myself. I actually spent about seven years as a journalist. And this is important because in my journalistic work, I came across people who were actually being trafficked on um, in agriculture first and then also sex traffic through the uh, intersection of the of substance use disorders, right? And it was through those stories uh, from those survivors that developed an interest in human trafficking. As a matter of fact, when I was a journalist, I did not have the language to describe these stories at all. And I took a Human Trafficking 101, which is a community education program that NC Stop Human Trafficking presented before I was on staff, of course. And that was, was what really kind of gave me what I was seeing because it's, it's an issue in Eastern North Carolina, across the state, really, and in the U.S., that is hard to pin down if you really don't have the education behind it. At NC Stop Human Trafficking, I've trained a lot of people on a community level, uh, professional levels, like law enforcement, substance use counselors, school personnel, healthcare providers. The list really does go on and on, honestly. But a lot of professionals about how to identify what they're seeing in their setting 
and how mm-hmm. to respond appropriately, right? So that's one of the things that I do for the organization. On top of our collaborative piece where we bring other disciplines together to um, mm-hmm. really build up that continuum of care for survivors and victims who are leaving situations and trying to achieve restoration, as well as advocating mm-hmm. for stronger anti-human trafficking legislation on state and federal levels. So that's just a little bit about me and also what the organization does, because in a nutshell, that's exactly what we do. Uh, we have a vision of a state free of human trafficking with a mission to create communities actively working to abolish human trafficking. Okay. So if you have not had a human trafficking one-on-one training, the human trafficking one-on-one training that NC Stop Human Trafficking does is an amazing, amazing training. When I first came to North Carolina back in 2019, I took part in this training and Melinda was the facilitator. And although I was aware of human trafficking, the training it provides such great information that a lay person can even gain the knowledge that they need to identify and even help someone. Just some of the effort, you know, it's it makes you so aware of, you know, you're riding past places and you kind of looking at places with the side eye because these are some of the establishments or some of the things that you talk about in the training. So tell me, Melinda, how does the organization, how are you impacting things on the systems level? So when you talk about systems levels, uh, we, first of all, we're training these service providers or professionals who will come into contact with victims or survivors, it's really important that they understand the nature and the reality of human trafficking. There's a common misconception around human trafficking being some sort of forcible kidnap scheme. And that misconception has really hindered victim response. Uh, It's a myth. I'm not saying personal practicing personal safety is not uh, a good thing. Of course you should, but Human trafficking really comes from a forcible kidnap. Most of the time in human trafficking experiences, victims and survivors know the perpetrator, right? They know who the person who's exploiting them. So when we talk about systems changing, we have to talk about how professionals see human trafficking first and foremost. If law enforcement officers, for instance, are only looking for forcible kidnap to see human trafficking, then they're not going to really see it. They're not Mm going to see what's the most insidious part of human trafficking, which is that coercion and the fraud part. Mm -hmm. And of course, forces involved with physical abuse and confinement and things like that. It's really the most insidious things that keep victims from self-identifying or reaching out for help and accepting Mm -hmm. help when they come along, when help uh, is offered. So when people begin to understand how the human trafficking schemes are set up and how people are incredibly victimized, not only as on a physical, like a violent level, but also how it affects their um, mental health and how it affects their communication and how it affects how it affects how they see the world is really important. So that's one way we try to work on a systems level to let professionals know that you see that this person may need help, but this person sees it as their day-to-day life. And they don't oftentimes don't realize that there is help available. So when you can train professionals to approach victims or survivors in the way, in that way, and like that trauma-informed, compassion and empathetic way, there's a lot of change that happens because they're the ones that are going to be providing the services or helping people, right? 
Right. Another, yeah. And another systems level change is we got to work all, we all have to work together to address this issue. Human trafficking does not happen in a vacuum. You don't just have human trafficking and no other forms of violence around it or no other social issues we're concerned with around it. Where there's human trafficking, where there's substance use disorders and a prevalence of an influx of substances in a community, there's likely going to be human trafficking where poverty exists to the max. There's going to, there's likely going to be human trafficking. If you see an increase in homelessness or unsheltered people, then human trafficking will also exist. So it's really important to understand the different intersections that contribute to this type of exploitation and abuse. So we also really focus on those intersections because we do want to prevent this from happening. Of course, we want to see victims become survivors and reach restoration. But primary prevention is where our heart is in a lot of places. When we talk about systems changing, it doesn't have to be this way. And there are ways we can change our communities to make it better. I hope that that answered your question. (laughs) No, 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 no. That's good good stuff. So thinking about the connection, going back to to the connection piece and the fact that, you know, unfortunately, a lot of victims are victimized by individuals that they know. So can you speak to what the connection is between domestic and sexual violence and human trafficking? Oh, absolutely. The connection there would, there honestly would not be human trafficking if there wasn't, I guess, I don't want to say a relative acceptance of this type of violence, but in a, it kind of is seen as a norm in, in our society for the most part. Uh, Human trafficking is often intimate partner violence for something of value. So if you look at um, domestic violence, you know about the power and control wheel, right? Yep. And the power and control wheel for human trafficking is exactly the same, except there's something of value that the abuser is getting for that abuse, right? It's not just the satisfaction of controlling their partner. It's also they're receiving something of value for that control. And Mm -hmm. so when we're talking about human trafficking and the domestic violence intersection, it's huge typically. And then we can also look at sexual uh, violence, right? If you want to break it down, and I don't like to sanitize language, so um, forgive me, but the acceptance of sexual assault in our society is the reason that that, that sex trafficking is so prevalent and so in demand. I I would say that I would say the act of buying somebody for sex is violent. And that is, a sex, that is to me, that is sexual violence. As an advocate, okay. that is how I see it. So when it's considered okay to do something like that, or is it, when it's considered by our uh, society to be okay to buy sex or commercialize sexual exploitation or commercialize and objectify human bodies, then that's why sex trafficking can be so prevalent because there's demand for it. There is demand for commercial sex and people think it is okay. And they don't see that as an act of violence against someone else. They see it as totally normal. And it's also seen as an entitlement for some as well. So the intersection of domestic violence and sexual assault is when we're talking about human trafficking is, it's really huge. Uh, you can't take one and not take the Without other. Without the other. Right. Yeah. No, that that makes total sense. I mean, we see it a lot within the organization where I provide leadership to. A lot of times they are intertwined and we can't seem to separate them. And we oftentimes find ourselves, the more we work with the client, the more we find ourselves, oh, this isn't domestic violence. This is actually human trafficking. 
we we see it more times than we care to even want to admit that this is Mm -hmm. actually human trafficking. Like it started out maybe as, you know, we can identify it as an intimate partner relationship. But after the trust is gained between the client and the advocate, and the more that is disclosed and the more that is revealed, it's wait. This is so much more than, and even going through the lethality assessment and the power, it's, it, it becomes so much bigger than just your typical, and nothing's typical about domestic violence, but it's so much more than just domestic violence. Absolutely. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm totally, uh, and it takes, if we're a trafficking survivor to give you peace, because a lot of times when we're talking about getting, the full story from a survivor, it takes that building of the trust between the advocate and the absolutely. survivor, right? And, and they're that not take gonna re- weeks and months. Absolutely. And it takes a long time to peel back each uh, part of the story. And mm-hmm. I mean, we do connect it to sex trafficking a lot when we're talking about domestic violence, but also it's labor trafficking too, if that partner is forcing that person to work and taking their money. Absolutely. We see that a lot. You know, Uh the, the, the victim who is, you know, estranged from family and all I do is cook and clean. He controls all the money or she controls all the money. All I do is stay home with the children. I am never allowed to go, go outside. And when I do go outside, I am with him or her. We, we see it all the time, or we see it with, you know, a lot of the agriculture that goes on in Carolina. I came here to be able to work, to provide a better life for my family in this place. And now I am working and I am not being paid or I am not being paid what I was promised. Like we see it. It's disheartening how much we see it. It really makes me sick to my stomach how much we see it on a daily, daily basis. So we, we talked about the intersectionality between a lot of the different types of violence, but in your opinion, what do you think is, and we might've already touched on this a little bit, but in your opinion, what do you think is the intersectionality between gender-based violence and human trafficking? So not necessarily women, but I think mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, we underscore that this happens for men also, like women aren't the only victims of human trafficking, like men are also victims of human trafficking. They absolutely are victims of human trafficking. And I'm going to be frank with you, there aren't a lot of resources for men Mm -hmm. in the state, which is Mm -hmm. disheartening. My first uh, introduction into human trafficking as a journalist was interviews with men who were being labor trafficked. So it Mm. wasn't it wasn't sex trafficking. It was actually labor trafficking. And they were all men. Human trafficking is absolutely gender based violence. But to be clear, as far as we know, and it's only the data that we have also, because we all can also accept that men or male identifying people don't come forward and say they're being Mm -hmm. they're being victimized. Right. They're less likely to do that. And then in our society, there is a stigma around men being involved in sex trafficking because of homophobia and things like that. So a lot of men don't want to be associated with that stigma or to be seen as a victim of anything because of how men 
the expectations that society have of men, which are unrealistic. Oh, men. Yep. Yep. No. Yep. So they don't want to come forward and ask for help. So we couldn't possibly, we don't know how many men are, are being victimized, but I can say they are. And when they yep. do come forward, there's a nothing there's, we, we don't have a lot to help with them. And if we want to talk more about how it is gender-based violence, we can talk about from what we know, the data that we have, 98 to 99% of men are the demand side of sex trafficking. They are, they're the sex buyers, right? So it, right. It, it speaks to the, I guess, entitlement that there may be that is also socially accepted for men be able to be sexually gratified and, and whatever means they, they do necessary and whether that victim is going to be a woman or a man. At the end of the day, the buyer or the demand side is predominantly male. That we right. know about, I want to be very clear about that. Again, our data, when we're talking about it's human so trafficking, skewed. it's skewed yeah. and it's not, we don't have a lot of it to begin with. So I hope I answered your question about uh, no, absolutely. because there are men who are being victimized in labor and sex trafficking experiences, but they are reticent to come forward. And then when they do, there isn't a lot of help available for them here, which is very right. sad to me. It is very sad. I mean, we find that the services for, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy that there are services for women. I'm elated. I mean, I am a woman. So of course I'm elated that there are so many services for, for women, but men are experiencing and go through the same exact traumas mm -hmm. and are facing the same exact issues that women are facing and the services are scarce and it leaves room for this repetition of trauma over mm -hmm. and over and over again because they have no place to retreat to to mm -hmm. seek services. So in your opinion, what are some best ways for human service professionals and social workers to work with victims who get that window of opportunity to flee their trafficker? So I would say the best way to work with victims who flee the situation, first of all, it would be wonderful if we had, well, dependent on the agencies, of course, right? And the mm -hmm. community that, that they are in, because every community has different resources and some don't have many. So I understand that. It would be wonderful to work for the advocate to work on crisis intervention to begin with, and then look at the full spectrum to restoration. Because when people leave a trafficking experience, they typically don't have anything. They don't have housing. They don't have their, they don't even have our, their identification. Right. So we looking at the smallest things first and like building that foundation to get them to where they are, they're, in a well, housing first, of course, that's really a huge thing. Make sure they're in a safe uh, housing and then work on the foundations to get their whether that be job skills training, mental health services, what they're going to need next, and then figure mm -hmm. that block out and then figure out what they're going to need long term. Long term would be what are their goals? Like, really sit down with a a survivor and say, what do you want in your mm -hmm. life? What's your dream? Where do you want to go from here? And walk alongside them in a non-judgmental way, because we always have to understand that their experience is not something that many people would understand. So judging right. their responses and judging their communication styles is not going to help them at all. So walk alongside them on a very human level and help them along their way and just be a support system. Because at the end of the day, when somebody's leaving a situation like that, the only support system that is there is typically going to be the advocate. 
And right. we also need to keep in mind, there's probably going to be a lot of legal issues going on, criminal issues and things Absolutely. like that. So yeah. it's not just they left the situation, they're great. That's not how it typically works. It's they left the situation, we need to find safe housing, we need to get them in substance use disorder recovery as that is necessary. They have criminal there charges. There may be children involved. Have, children are involved. It yep. takes, it's like the whole system that is set up, they need someone to walk beside them at each point. Because it's not, for, for in some cases, navigating the system is harder than the life that they were living, if I hope that makes right. sense. Not no, to say that makes total sense. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. That, that makes total sense. It's literally starting. It's almost like starting life all over again. Yes. From the basic of basic necessity. Some of the stuff that we kind of take for granted sometimes. So it's literally starting, starting all over. So what are some things that a lay person could be on the lookout for or should be aware of when they may suspect that they encounter a situation or if they're out and about and they may see somebody that may, you know, a situation that might not look so Mm -hmm. cool? Well, I always encourage people, just community members to stay safe. And not interfere with what they're saying. Yeah. That's not the best way to go. Not number one for the safety of the, the community person, the community member, but also for the safety of that victim, right? Absolutely. Uh, that that victim could be subject to some sort of abuse if somebody interferes. And they have like if a community person interferes in a situation, uh, they don't know what's going on. They don't know how dangerous the perpetrator or the violent party is. And they mm-hmm. don't know what to do after they interfere and it could just be more harmful than good. So what I would say for a community person, if you see something that's not right, absolutely report it, right? Call the national human trafficking hotline at 1-888-3737-888. If you know about service providers in your area, call them and see what they can do or what's available. If you are close to the person you believe who's being victimized, right? And also you can always And I say this, but I would always prefer you call the National Human Trafficking Hotline because some law enforcement officers do not have the human trafficking training necessary. Mm -hmm. And I don't want, because if you're involved in commercial, in the sex trade, that's legal. It doesn't help a victim to be arrested for commercial sex, right? That's not helpful. So if you know that your law enforcement is trained in human trafficking, then by all means, call them and say, I do believe this is a trafficking situation. Can you can you take a look at this? If they're children now, if they're under the age of 18, you have to call law enforcement and you Absolutely. have to call the social services. You've got to call DSS. Anybody under the age of 18 and performing commercial sex, where they ha- whether they have a trafficker or a third-party controller or not, they're automatically child sex trafficking victims by the state of by the law of state of North Carolina. And that needs right. to be reported to law enforcement and DSS because we are all mandatory reporters, save for a few exceptions. So that would be my answer. I didn't know if you needed, if you were looking for some indicators or red flags or anything either. If you want to share some indicators that for the audience, that would be cool. Well, if you see somebody and it's really all subjective too, just so we're all on the same page about that. If you see someone who is acting anxious, anxious, overly submissive, fearful, sometimes it might not be human trafficking, but something's not, not right. So That is definitely something that probably you could, if you see someone acting that way and they're not accompanied by somebody, definitely ask if they're okay, of course, but you, that's a big indicator. Other indicators include like, if you're looking at a business, is that in that business or that 
facility, that house has unusual security measures. You know what I'm saying? Like the windows are covered up, there are security cameras around something that doesn't look like it needs to have security cameras. Even fences that are facing the barbed wire fences facing the wrong way. Like if they are pointing inward, that's keeping people in. You know what I'm saying? I think that was one of the things when I did the training with you a couple years ago. And I think you show a picture in the training that shows the windows blacked out. I think, I don't know why, but that, that was one of the things I continue to play that over and over. And I continue to, when I'm out and about, I don't mm-hmm. know why I, I'm always looking at rundown buildings that I see people at, but then the buildings don't look like, like who in the heck would be going up in there? Because exactly. it don't even why look does, like it. Yeah. Right. Like who? Why, that don't even why look like anybody should be. Security cameras. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. I am always. You, that is just something that has always stuck in my head. Like it, it looked like it might have used to be a club or it might have used to be a bar, mm-hmm. but it isn't anymore. But then the windows are dark now, or they have like boards up at the windows, and it's behind a like an automatic fence. Like who in the world is going? I wouldn't. So exactly. who is going back there? So those are the that that's a really, really good point. And again, like Melinda said, you need to be mindful that you approaching, especially if the you now again, if the person is under the age of 18, you need to act. But you also have to be mindful if it's an adult that you could be harming the victim by approaching we're not telling you to go put your cape on and running Mm -hmm. in and saving the day because you really could make the situation bad for yourself and also even worse for the victim so it's really important that you assess the situation and you can always I mean I would say sign up for a training because the trainings are very, very insightful. Like they, I remember that picture as if I took the training yesterday. This is really, really hard work. So what advice would you give to a human service professional or a social worker who are either already doing this work with this population or considering doing this work with this population to com- combat burnout, secondary stress, or vicarious trauma? So I know I may be singing to the choir on this one, but um, <laughs> if, you are, <laughs> if you're doing this work, there are uh, there are more times than not that it is frustrating because there are Absolutely. so few there are so few resources and so little money really. I mean, so it's going to frustrate you um, a lot. But the wins, like when you see someone finally you know, moving in the, the direction that they want to move in, like they get the job that they wanted, or they finally get their car, or they, you know, are 90 days sober. I mean, that's when you feel it's so worth it. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's when you feel like you're really doing something that matters. But in the time frame between the time where you see the win and the times that you just see the a lot of L's, right? A lot of losses, mm-hmm. excuse me. <laughs> I would definitely recommend you don't overwork yourself and just know that at the end of the day, you're doing your best and just reminding yourself that you are doing your best and you can't, you can't eat an elephant. The only way to eat an elephant is one bite at a time, right? So just keep (laughs) doing your best and know that you're doing your best. And also be sure you're being completely honest with the people you're serving. You can always say, look, I'm going to, I know what you, you need. 
but, and I'm going to do my best, but I can't guarantee this. Uh, we don't, right. victims don't need somebody to come in and overpromise because those promises when they aren't fulfilled does a disservice, right? Right. Um, Absolutely. You as a service provider don't need to feel like you failed somebody that makes burnout terrible. And also uh-huh. be sure to take, if you take your time, if you have time off, take it, turn your phone off, stop checking your emails just for the time frame that you need to regroup because at the end of the day, you're not going to be able to do your best if you yourself need help, right? right. You can't help others if you need help too. So uh, it's right. important to make sure that you're okay before you can help other people. And, and that's not only in trafficking advocacy work, it's in all kinds of service providers, human services work. It's hard. That's right. It I mean, is. it's just hard. Yep. It is. So what does Melinda do for self-care? How do you take care of yourself? Because this is heavy work. You've been doing it for quite a while. First on the journalism end, now you are in it, in it. So what do you do to take care of yourself? Well, I like to read trash novels. That's where where I go to. I'm going to read some trash novels and I'm going to listen to some, I'm probably going to be listening to some Miles Davis some days (laughs) just to calm down. But also I try to get enough sleep. And though sometimes you can, I understand that, especially when you deal in crisis intervention and things like that, just try to make sure you're getting enough sleep, drink enough water, eat good food as much as you can. And do what you can do to like kind of mentally regroup. And those the trash novels I read help me mentally regroup. Yeah. I, know it doesn't sound, <laughs> I know it doesn't sound like like it's not a revolutionary thing, but um, I just need a brain cleaner. And an easy novel is the best way to go for me, right? A brain cleaner that's and right. some jazz music. <laughs> but that's well, how that I do it. Awesome. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Well, books are our love language here on the Passionate Stewardship Podcast. So we are here for it. (laughs) So Melinda, if anyone is interested in getting in touch with you or learning more about NC Stop Human Trafficking or signing up or donating, how could they get in touch? Well, if you want to learn more about NC Stop Human Trafficking, you can always visit our website at ncstophumantrafficking.org. That's where we post all of our virtual learning opportunities. Since COVID, we've gone completely virtual on our community education side. And I understand community members just got used to it, right? So we shifted and now we're all virtual for our community education. Our professional educations are typically in person, however. But if you want some education, we usually have one or two webinars a month geared toward community education, general community members learning this month because it's January. We've got so many education sessions lined up for our people, whether it be, well, we just finished our human trafficking 101 sessions. We have those in English and in Spanish, but now we're moving into, uh, we also have some caregiver empowerment sessions because you know what we are, we do want primary prevention to be a thing. So we talk, when we talk about caregiver empowerment sessions, I developed a curriculum around how to talk to kids about boundaries, consent, and porn because it's important. Awesome. And yeah, so it, it's very it, important. Yeah, so that 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 session is designed to make caregivers more comfortable with talking about these hard issues because we got to talk to these kids about it because if they if we're not talking to them about it, somebody else will be right. And that's not going to be the information right. that they need. And then I've, we've also got another caregiver empowerment session lined up this month on uh, tips for keeping kids safe online because recruitment and grooming is happening online now. That's absolutely um, that's the shift. And then we also have 
another session that really talks about uh, human trafficking, the anti-human trafficking movement in North Carolina. It's actually a relatively new phenomenon here in the state. I would yep. say it's a little bit over a decade old and where we compare the domestic violence movement to 30 years old. So, and we still aren't where we need to be around domestic not violence. Not at all. Yeah. Yep. So we're a new, it's a new it's not a new issue, but we're talking about it now, which is great. So we're talking about the history of the anti-human trafficking movement in North Carolina specifically in one of those sessions. And we're also talking about, then these are just community education sessions. And we also talk about the intersection of human, of sex trafficking and pornography and how that intersects, because you know, the number one industry in the United States or the number one venue where sex trafficking occur now is pornography. It's pornography. Yep. Yep. And that's because of the prevalence of, again, the internet, like we need to develop prevention as things change, you know, and, and the internet is where a lot of, a lot of this exploitation is going now. So we got to talk mm-hmm. about it. We got to have these hard conversations. And so that's what we're kind of about. So if you want to learn about our learning opportunities and all the other stuff we do, like our blogs, we usually post a blog a week. Uh, you can go to our website at ncstophumantrafficking.org, sign up for our newsletter. If you want to talk to me, or if you have additional questions, I always encourage you to send me an email. My email is melinda at nchumantrafficking.org. That's M-E-L-I-N-D-A at nchumantrafficking.org. And I'll, I'll answer your questions as soon as I can. I can't promise you super fast, but I'll do my best. I can promise you that. <laughs> <laughs> she is busy out here trying to make the world better, y'all. I'm doing well, what Melinda, I can. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. And you are doing an awesome job. Thank you so much today for joining us. And folks, y'all know what we do. Self-care is health care and kindness is free. So be kind to someone today. I love you for listening. Until next time, be good to yourself and someone else. Bye. Thank you. Thank you.